Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa for the Voice of America. I am James Barty in Washington. Today is Thursday, November 3rd, and here are some of the stories we are covering. A ceasefire has been declared in Ethiopia's Tigray conflict. The two parties in the Ethiopian conflict have formally agreed to the cessation of hostilities as well as to systematic, orderly, smooth and coordinated disarmament. An Ethiopian academic sees a win for Ethiopia and Africa. The 31st Arab League Summit in Algeria to discuss regional crises, including food security. University of Malawi students protest over plan for just one semester per year. Nigeria's main opposition presidential candidate will discuss security, economy, and politics ahead of the 2023 presidential elections. A former Liberian warlord is found guilty in Paris, France. This vision today should be an inspiration and encouragement to see that Liberia finally moves ahead with establishing a long-awaited war crimes court in the country. And Kenya is to promote climate change solutions for business. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Ethiopia's government and leaders from the country's Tigray region agreed to a ceasefire on Wednesday after a week of peace talks in South Africa. The ceasefire, if it holds, would halt a two-year civil war that has devastated much of northern Ethiopia. Linda Giftash reports from Pretoria. A ceasefire has been declared between the Ethiopian government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, or TPLF. Former Nigerian President Olushigan Obasanjo, who mediated the talks led by the African Union, delivered the news Wednesday in the South African capital of Pretoria. The two parties in the Ethiopian conflict have formally agreed to the cessation of hostilities as well as to systematic, orderly, smooth and coordinated disarmament restoration of law and order, restoration of services, unhindered access to humanitarian supplies, protection of civilians, especially women, children, and other vulnerable groups, among other areas of agreement. Today is the beginning of a new dawn for Ethiopia for the Horn of Africa, and indeed for Africa as a whole. Let me hasten to thank God for this new dawn. We have seen in practice and actualization what we have tried to achieve for ourselves over the years, and that is African solution for African problems. Obasanjo congratulated both parties for agreeing to the cessation of hostilities, disarmament, as well as restoring humanitarian access to the country's northern region. The United Nations and United States were observers in the talks that began last week. The conflict between the Ethiopian government and TPLF began two years ago, with each party blaming the other for initiating the violence. The roots of the dispute stretch back nearly three decades. The TPLF dominated the country's ruling coalition until 2018, when it lost power on a national level. 
the current government led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has accused the TPLF of attempting to restore its national hold, while the TPLF accuses the government of trying to oppress Tigray, where the party retains a stronghold. Neither side has confirmed casualty figures, but academics say the conflict has killed hundreds of thousands of people, including many civilians. Humanitarian aid has largely been blocked from reaching the region, and the United Nations estimates that upwards of 5.2 million people in Tigray are dealing with extreme food insecurity. They also lack access to vital medicine and other resources. A ceasefire was previously called in March, but that agreement collapsed in August. Since then, international pressure has been mounting for the warring parties to silence the guns. Although a civil conflict, the effects have rippled throughout the Horn of Africa. Eritrean forces had entered Ethiopian territory to back the national government. Refugees fleeing the fighting spilled into neighboring countries like Sudan. The agreement is only the beginning of the peace process, says Obasanjo, and it will allow the devastated region to begin to rebuild. Linda Giftash for VOA News, Pretoria, South Africa. An Ethiopian-born academic says Wednesday's agreement in South Africa between the Ethiopian federal government and the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, was a win-win for both sides. Ethiopia as a country and the African Union. Brooke Hailu is adjunct professor of political science at the University of Maryland and North Carolina A&T State University. He tells me that specifically the African Union made its most significant contribution to peace on the continent since its founding 20 years ago. The African Union mediator, former Nigerian President Ulushikon Obasanjo, announced the cessation of hostilities agreement Wednesday after week-long negotiations in South Africa. Professor Hailu tells me that Ethiopians have been praying for an end to this war that has killed thousands and displaced millions. Well, uh, as an Ethiopian-American or as an American of Ethiopian origin, that is really one big news that you don't get every year or every other month. This is uh, really a news that uh, I and millions of Ethiopians were praying for. For the last uh, two years, Mr. James, as you know, a terrible war to the maximum where more than half a million people died, uh, not counting the, the loss of uh, property and the injured and the like. This is one big news that Ethiopians really would welcome. And I also welcomed it when the, the two sides signed an eight-point agreement. And uh, that is really would, would propel Ethiopia to another higher, a new uh, peaceful chapter in Ethiopia's political history. I would take it that way. Professor, how were they able to reach this agreement? Did any one of the two sides win or is a win-win situation? A great question. What I would say is when it comes to winning, uh, the Ethiopian people won't, to be honest with you. The country, the nation as a whole won't. Secondly, both sides came to the round table, agreed to negotiate after a very lengthy process of direct and indirect pressure. And eventually they agreed eight days ago to meet in Pretoria, South Africa. Thirdly, uh, who won? Africa won. This is unprecedented. The Ethiopian government, especially more so, was really convinced and was, was committed to say that this is a, an internal matter, this is an African issue, and this needs to be solved by Africans themselves. So that was the priority, and the African Union was highly engaged, and I would say since the start of Organization of African Unity, and now its a successor organization, the African Union, no such really case was solved in a very fundamental way with the positive contribution of the African Union delegation. So Africa, I would say, won. The Horn of Africa also won because Ethiopia, as you know, uh, is the anchor of the Horn of Africa. If Ethiopia fails, the whole region, several countries would fail all around the Horn of Africa. 
So I think we are all winners. What also uh, made the, this uh, agreement uh, a winner situation is that peace prevents and also the territorial integrity of an African nation, an ancient African nation called Ethiopia, which counts its years to 3,000, 4,000 years. It won. And the cause uh, that uh, the, unfortunately uh, the rebel group, the TPLF, stood for, and after uh, two years, they had to accept the fact that they had to live in one nation called Ethiopian society as one brothers among so many ethnic groups in Ethiopia. They agreed also to come into the fold of the Ethiopian family. They also accepted the fact that they couldn't get their way or achieve their purpose by following the armed wing or the armed struggle way. The armed struggle way uh, did not work. So the only way forward for all Ethiopians TPLF, the Ethiopian government, any opposition, any support or what have you is what? They put the villain and the culprit together. So, uh, Professor, as you said, both sides won. The issue of the ceasefire, a cessation yes. of hostilities, how likely yes. that this can hold? A great question. When I said both sides won, I mean from the Tigrayan people, from the Ethiopian point of view. Uh, the TPLF had militarily lost the war. This is a fact. As you might know, the whole of Tigray was liberated by federal forces, and the regional capital city, Makale, is totally surrounded. And the TPLF have nowhere to go except to come to the negotiations with the round table. And they accepted their defeat, I would say, with grace. They should be commended in a way. Now, how far can we go in the peace process? It depends on the, on the reality on the ground. For both sides, the Tigrayan federal government and the, the Tigrayan regional government, the TPLF, both are, have said in their press releases and conferences that they are committed to that, and I, I think they will stick to that. Professor Hailu, it's always a pleasure to get your insight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Professor Brooke Hailu is adjunct professor of political science at the University of Maryland and North Carolina A&T State University. You are speaking with us from North Carolina. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken says the U.S. welcomes the momentum step taken in Pretoria Wednesday to advance the African Union's campaign to silence the guns with the signing of a cessation of hostilities between the government of Ethiopia and Tigray People's Liberation Front. He commended the parties for taking the initial step to agree to end the fighting and continue dialogue to resolve outstanding issues to consolidate peace and bring an end to almost two years of conflict. Blinken also said the U.S. welcomes the unimpeded delivery of humanitarian assistance and the protection of civilians that should result from implementation of the agreement. U.N. Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez also welcomed the signing of the agreement for lasting peace through a permanent cessation of hostilities between the government of the Federal Democratic Republic of Ethiopia and the Tigris People Liberation Front. The Secretary General urges all Ethiopians and the international community to support the bold step taken by the federal government of Ethiopia and the Tigrayan leadership. listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Barton, Washington. Today is Thursday, November 3rd. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. On 
the second and final day of the 31st Arab League Summit in Algeria, Arab leaders sought consensus on long-standing issues that have divided member states. Edward Uranian has more from Cairo on the day's events. An Algerian military band played the country's national anthem Wednesday as visiting Arab heads of state paid homage to the host country on the anniversary of its own revolution that brought independence from France 60 years ago. President Abdelmajid Taboun presided over the summit. Arab League head Ahmed Abulrait noted various key issues under discussion, including the current Cold War climate affecting the world and an ongoing food crisis facing the Arab states. He says no doubt the food crisis and ongoing threats to food security represent top priorities of the summit, and we hope that the summit will establish a pan-Arab strategy for food security. Egyptian President Abdel Fattah al-Sisi told fellow heads of state that insecurity in one part of the Arab world also affects Arab states in other areas. <laughs> He says instability in the Maghreb affects Egypt and the Gulf, and insecurity in Palestine and the Mashrek, countries in the eastern part of the Arab world, affects the Maghreb as well, while the security of the Gulf affects us all. The head of Libya's presidential council, Khaled al-Mishri, told Arab leaders that his country is still seeking security and stability 10 years after its revolution that toppled veteran leader Muammar Gaddafi. He says that the Libyan people are still trying to rebuild their state on the basis of freedom, democracy, and law, but that goal remains under threat both locally, regionally, and internationally. He says, so we ask our Arab brethren to support us in demanding that all outside mercenaries leave the country. Edward Uranian for VOA News, Cairo. Former Nigerian Vice President Atiku Abubakar and presidential candidate for the Opposition People's Democratic Party, the PDP, in the country's 2023 presidential election was in Washington this week and visited our studio. He spoke with reporter Aliou Mustafa of VOA's Hausa Language Service on a wide range of issues in Nigeria, including security, economy, and politics. Well, I mean, uh, if you look at all the parameters, economic parameters, uh, security, peace, uh, prosperity, Nigeria has fared far, far, far better under PDP yes, than the... But you yes, also uh, accuse PDP of corruption, of being corrupt at the time it was ruled. But we have come to realize that the APC is even more corrupt than PDP. Okay, so uh, what are you telling your voters so they can again vote PDP into office? Well, I will remind them of the prosperity, you know, that uh, uh, PDP brought to the country between 1999 and 2007, and then also the poverty, the insecurity, uh, the instability that the APC has brought uh, since uh, they came into office. 
You have said that you want to prevent the country from descending into, quote-unquote, frightening descent into anarchy. What do you mean by that? What I mean is that I'm going to strengthen the security agencies in the country. I'm going to have uh, more uh, personnel. I'm going to have more equipment. And I'm also going to uh, devolve more security apparatus to the local governments and also the states so that it will not be a, just a federal government uh, affair. It should be a concurrent you know, uh, area uh, between the federal government, states, and local governments, and that requires constitutional amendment. The next president will have multiple priorities, growing insecurity, deep economic problems, rampant inflation, industrial crude oil theft, separatist agitation, among others. Should you and your party win, what do you plan to do to tackle this? On day one, we already have laid out, you know, all those um, areas in our document, which is called my covenant with Nigerians. Mm. And in that document, we have addressed all these issues: uh, insecurity, uh, poverty, oil theft, uh, and so on and so forth. Should we expect you to go into alliances with some of these uh, other political parties? Alliances are a normal phenomenon in a political dispensation. If there are reasons for us to go into alliances, we will go. For instance, I promise that even if we win overwhelmingly, I'm going to set up a government of national unity, meaning that I will reach out to other political parties to participate in the government so that we can, first of all, bring unity back to the country, bring stability. Unless you have unity and stability, all the programs you have lined up to implement, you cannot implement them. That was former Nigerian Vice President Atiku Abubakar and presidential candidate for the Opposition People's Democratic Party, the PDP, in the country's 2023 presidential elections. He was speaking in Washington, D.C. with Aliou Mustafa of VOA's Hausa Language Service. A U.S.-based human rights activist says she hopes the conviction this week of a Liberian war law would push the Liberian government towards the creation of a war crimes court to prosecute alleged crimes committed during that country's long civil war. A court in Paris, France, on Wednesday convicted Kuti Kamara, a.k.a. Kuti K. He is a former commander of the United Liberation Movement of Liberia, ULIMO, one of the several rebel groups during Liberia's first civil war that took place from 1989 to 1996. The 48-year-old Kuti K. was being tried for alleged acts of torture, cannibalism, and other crimes against humanity, including sexual violence. Kamara rejected all the charges against him at the trial. Elise Kepler is Associate Director of the International Justice Program at Human Rights Watch, which is based in New York City. She tells me the conviction of Kuti Kamara was a rare opportunity for justice. This is the first time that France has prosecuted crimes committed abroad, international crimes that are not linked to the Rwandan genocide. And it's the first conviction on crimes against humanity committed in Liberia during the first civil war in that country. Um, to date, there's been almost no uh, justice for serious crimes committed during Liberia's civil conflict. And this is a rare uh, opportunity for justice. The accused Kunti K, Kunti Kamara, uh, referred to during much of the proceedings as Kunti K, was convicted of crimes against humanity, complicity in com crimes against humanity, and also barbaric acts and torture. He was personally identified as having participated even physically in some of these acts. What does this mean now? Because as you said, he participated in the war. 
there are many, many, many people who are still in Liberia who participated. Can they set a precedent so that hopefully that there will be some closure or trial, possibly some of those people who are still hanging on there in Liberia? Absolutely. This decision today should be an inspiration and encouragement to see that Liberia finally moves ahead with establishing a long-awaited war crimes court in the country. The country's Truth and Reconciliation Commission back in 2009 recommended the establishment of a war crimes court. Activists and victims have been campaigning for that court. Um, Unfortunately, President Weah, while initially signaling some interest, has really gone quiet on a court. And yet we have a situation of widespread impunity for systematic violations, devastating abuses, killings, sexual violence, torture committed during the conflicts that have never been dealt with by criminal accountability. So it's much needed. We've encouraged the government to request assistance from the United Nations and other international partners, whether the African Union, European Union, United States. The U.S. war crimes ambassador was recently in Liberia and signaled openness and willingness to offer assistance to the Liberian government in setting up a court. Now is the time to request that assistance and set up a court that can fairly and credibly prosecute the crime. Elise, thank you so much. A pleasure always to talk with you. Thanks so much. Take care. Elise Kepler is Associate Director of the International Justice Program at the U.S.-based Human Rights Watch. She was speaking with us from New York. Students at the University of Malawi are protesting over the school's decision to have only one semester per year, doubling the length of time needed for a degree. The school closed down on Wednesday after students blocked roads to the campus, and administrators say classes will not resume until the demonstrations end. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The students have been holding demonstrations on and around campus since Friday in an effort to make officials abandon the new academic calendar set to begin next year. On Wednesday, protesters blocked the roads to the campus by burning tires in the streets. Humble Bondo, president of the Students' Council at the university, said the protests were stepped up this week after management failed to address students' concerns during a meeting Monday. During the meeting, we presented our stance and we said to them, we will stop doing our videos until the academic calendar change. So instead of addressing our issue on the table, the option that we gave them, they said we cannot manage to do this. A similar protests in September ended in clashes between the police and the students. The University of Malawi administration said in a statement Wednesday it decided to close the institution because the protests were threatening security of management and members of the public. They instructed all students to leave the campus by noon. Bondo said closing the institution was unfair. The impact is a lot. And mind you that we are fighting for this, that we need to have a stable academic calendar. We should finish within the period of one year, two semesters, but this will also prolong the time that we will stay at the university. The university so far has not stated a reason for cutting back to one semester per year. Alfred Banda, spokesman for the University of Malawi, told VOA Wednesday he would not make further comments 
about the matter. We are not providing any further information beyond the press statement that we have made for the public to know what happened. So we will not proceed to provide any information. Education expert Benedicto Kondowe forced the university administration for closing the institution and said he hopes the matter gets resolved soon. If they take longer, some of the students will drop out because they will lose motivation because it doesn't make sense to do a, a four-year program in five, six years. What about a girl child? Some of the girls will feel pregnant. So I think there's a huge implication that the duty bearers will need to consider in the circumstances. Student Union President Bondo told VOA the students are seeking a court injunction against the closure of the institution. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. And that's it for this Thursday, November 3rd edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for being our guest this morning. For more Africa news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We are also on YouTube, where you can watch our TV shows, Africa 54, Straight Talk Africa, and Red Carpet. On behalf of the Daybreak Africa team, I am James Barton, Washington.